Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 21st, 2021, 2121. Um, the news this morning from San Francisco uh, on the edge of the heart of tech, Silicon Valley, is that big tech is getting bigger. No real surprises there. Headline in the FT from a day or two ago about big tech companies snapping up small arrivals at record pace. In other words, the tendency towards monopolies uh, arguably continues. Um Governments all over the world are beginning to confront this and think about how they're dealing with it. An interesting um, new white paper out uh, from Freedom House suggests that the global drive to control big tech is actually um, resulting in the rights of Internet users being uh, undermined there, according to this this interesting uh, new white paper from Freedom House. They're quoting Freedom House, the main casualties of this. In other words, as, 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 gov- as, um, as, as big tech and governments clash, we, the internet users, are suffering. Um, the news, though, on this conflict is that Margaret Vestager, who we've talked about a lot on this show, has suggested that the EU is far ahead on the, the curve of privacy. This out of a, the news, an, an interview Uh, with her in the New Statesman a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The EU, and I've written about this in books as well, is pioneering the way in which governments are taking on big tech. Um, And even the Biden administration, Sleepy Joe, is waking up to this, apparently, according to the Washington Post, at least. Um, The Biden administration is finally noticing this conglomeration or agglomeration of power all over the world. People are beginning to notice Um, as a new set of sheriffs in town in Washington, D.C. when it comes to big tech. uh, Lena Khan, the new head of the FTC, is the top sheriff in this. And she told, apparently, Uh, One of her aides told an Israeli newspaper, this was reported this morning in Politico, uh, that she expects Congress to break up Facebook and Google, which would be astonishing. Uh, Other countries are dealing with big tech in different ways. South Korea is trying to limit Google on Apple's control of of their app stores. Uh, Meanwhile, the Chinese are slightly less sophisticated in their attempt to rein in big tech. One billionaire, Jack Ma, seems to have disappeared entirely. And one of uh, China's most exciting companies, in economic terms at least, uh, Didi Chung, the, uh, the rideshare equivalent to Uber, um, now is in such crisis that uh, Beijing City looks, uh, according to Reuters, they're going to take Didi under state control. In other words, all over the world, governments are trying to figure out how to deal f- with big tech from the United States to South Korea to China. Uh, One book that's just come out that uh, deals with this issue in in, in very detailed and erudite and relevant way uh, is from three Stanford professors, System Era, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. 
uh, one of the authors, Rob Reich, who's a professor of political philosophy at Stanford, uh, we had on the show last week. Uh, today, I have another of the, the co-authors of this book, Jeremy Weinstein, who's a longtime Washington, D.C. Um, uh, politician, bureaucrat. He worked with Obama, and he knows this uh, uh, relationship between Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley inside out. I'm thrilled that Rob is on the show today. Uh, not Rob, but Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Weinstein. Jeremy, so for apologies. Uh, apologies for that rather long-winded introduction, but this is a long-winded subject, isn't it? Governments all over the world are trying to figure out how to, to deal with big tech. And there are different strategies from Vestager strategy in Europe to the emerging developments of the Biden administration to South Korea to China. Is that fair? I mean, we're absolutely at an inflection point in the relationship between big tech companies and government. Uh, and for a number of years, you know, one would look across the pond from Europe and say the United States was asleep at the wheel. There was leadership that came from the European Union, not only from Vestager, also with the advent of privacy regulation coming out of Europe. A different moment today with a new administration in the United States that's taking very seriously the challenges posed by big tech, not only on issues of privacy, but also in the antitrust space, beginning to think uh, more broadly about how to reposition the relationship between the state and these market dominant uh, tech companies going forward. One thing I'd say, Andrew, though, is that, you know, this moment that we're in with big tech today is just the continuation of what's been a long running race between democracy and disruption. It's not entirely new that we find ourselves in a moment where tremendous innovations in the private sector have generated both extraordinary benefits, but also social harms that are visible to us and democracy struggles to keep pace with that. This is a cycle that we see repeated historically over time, and we find ourselves now at one of those policy windows where the social harms are so evident and clear that the incentives are there both for politicians on the left and the right in the United States, uh, and for politicians in multiple countries to stand up and do this. Jeremy, uh, your book, System Era, I think is very balanced. Perhaps if there's a critique, it's a pet little too balanced in terms of how to deal with big tech. And I'm curious, you, you brought up the way in which big tech is changing society and, and having in some ways a problematic impact on society, whether some of these companies are worse than others. Um, it seems to me, and, and maybe I'm biased here, but um, Facebook is, 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 is particularly problematic. Every day, it seems, there's new stories about how dishonest Facebook is uh, and, and the impact of Facebook on, uh, on society. The Wall Street Journal has been running a series uh, uh, revealing what Facebook's up to. One, one, doc, one series of company documents reveal that there's a secret elite user group in Facebook who are exempt from all their uh, policing. Um, then there was a story earlier uh, last week about how Facebook knows Instagram is toxic for teenage girls but have done nothing about it. This is particularly relevant in the context of the Gabrielle Petito uh, story, an Instagram, um, uh, a popular figure on Instagram who, who seems to have just been murdered by, uh, uh, by, by her, her fiancé. Um, now lawmakers are pushing Facebook to uh, indeed abandon Instagram for, for kids, citing mental health concerns. 
Can we distinguish between the big tech players? Are some worse than others? And is Facebook, in your mind, particularly problematic? I guess I'd say two things in response to your question. First, you know, one of the central arguments of the book is that often get lost in a focus on particular technologies or particular leaders of tech companies, trying to make judgments about whether they're good or bad people, whether the we see of these technologies are are basically rooted in some personal failings of leadership. And and the argument of the book is that we think we've got systemic problems here systemic problems that are reflected from one platform to another, from one technology to another, that are rooted in an orientation toward optimization that's driven by this kind of engineering mindset, the pressure driven by venture capital to scale technologies before we really understand their societal consequences, and then the deliberate indifference of our political system to these social effects. And so, yes, we can focus on individual com companies and their problems, and I'll say something about Facebook in a second, sight of the structural and systemic drivers of tech's harmful effects, we'll just be solving these issues sort of technology by technology. And that won't really position us down the road to address what are the next set of technologies and the potential harms that are created. So that's why we sort of focus the book really on, on systemic solutions. But you're right to lift up Facebook and, and let's talk about Facebook. You know, the Facebook files that were released uh, and reported on by the Wall Street Journal over the last week are deeply dispiriting. And they're deeply dispiriting for a number of reasons. Number one, they make abundantly clear that it has been the case that Facebook totally understands the potential social harms of its own technologies and products. That is the investments that have been made by for recent years to build up their social and behavioral science capacity, to, to test through A-B testing the effects of changes to their platform on people's mental health or use patterns of particular uh, applications that they learn about these harmful effects. And then when the decision rises up the chain, they nonetheless choose to ignore those harmful effects and move forward with optimizing time on platform, ensuring that they continue to be able to realize the significant ad revenues that they bring in. Um, so it's not enough to know about these problems. That's what's abundantly clear. And then the second thing is just how much power is vested in the hand of a single individual, right? The governor, 4 billion people around the world, Mark Zuckerberg, to make these decisions that ultimately have significant societal effects. And if there's a kind of single unifying theme among the uh, many politicians and governments that are thinking about these issues at the current moment, it's the profound discomfort that people feel with the concentration of that power uh, in the hands of a single individual or a small number of individuals who operate behind closed doors. And so with a platform as prominent as, and with capability as extraordinary as the capability of, of Facebook with its engineers, with its reach in terms of product, um, the potential harm uh, and when they're actually sort of realized in the world are, are huge and significant in ways that, that we can, can no longer ignore. Uh, are you suggesting, Jeremy, that perhaps we might look at laws that wouldn't allow um, uh, a trillion dollar company like Facebook to be controlled by essentially a single shareholder, Mark Zuckerberg, in terms of voting rights uh, and, and, and its board? Is that what you're saying? So I think we're at a moment where 
there are a lot of potential avenues of change in terms of accountability for companies that have to be explored, right? So one example of that that we've seen in, in recent years with respect to content moderation is Facebook's effort to say, maybe to try and forestall government regulation and say, we're not comfortable ourselves being the governors of the speech environment. And so ultimately we need to be in a position where there's some legitimacy to the content moderation choices we make. And so Zuckerberg and his team created something called the Facebook Oversight Board. You may have talked about it on the show previously, brought on board a set of international and domestic human rights lawyers to help make judgments about things like the decision. Can we take that seriously though, Jeremy? Is it, uh, is it just uh, an opportunity to deflect criticism and take people's minds off the core problems? I think what I'd say to you, and, and this is why I, I sort of began the answer with, there are multiple solutions that are out there. We're in a moment of exploring these things. The cynical read on it is it's an effort to, to deflect. And, um, but the reality is that when you create an independent body and you give it decision-making authority and a budget that exists outside the company, you begin to put pressure on the company in new ways, as we saw with the turning back of the, of the deplatforming decision back to Facebook. But I think my second point is that it's not enough these efforts at self-regulation that are happening inside companies. And ultimately, we're seeing just a tremendous disconnect between what companies are optimizing for and how we might address the social harms of these technologies. And the ways that you're going to get at that are and thinking, what are the guardrails that need to be set in place by our governments? Again, the EU has been a model leader on this. California has followed suit, but we've not yet seen uh, sort of uh, momentum yet in the federal government to take action, uh, but it's beginning to happen in the United States. But then we also need to see change within the structure of companies. We are at a moment in this day and age where despite the power invested in the hands of, of owners of a large set of shares or small boards that govern these companies, they're finding themselves incapable of operating fully in the way that they did in the past. Whether it's a function of pressure from below as they compete for talent, Workers who say they don't want to work on national security, they don't want their technologies sold to police departments uh, for facial recognition and surveillance. Um, but we're also seeing bigger debates about what should be the bottom line of companies and, and even legislation that questions how boards of directors are appointed and whether we need greater representation of workers on boards uh, to better reflect diversity of interests. So I think we're at that moment of reimagining this system. Uh, and to see these different experiments, even though we don't know which set of experiments are really going to yield the results that we most want to achieve. Well, I think that's one of the nice things about your book, System Error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot, is it, is it deals with this in some detail. You talked about the American government responding, beginning to respond. You also talked about speed. I think speed's all important. Zuckerberg, of course, famously said, he doesn't say it anymore, move fast and break things. He's broken so many things and moved so fast that uh, that's only um, created, I think, bad karma, bad PR for him. Washington, D.C., though, does seem to be finally learning how to move fast. The journal just did a, a, a Saturday essay about the return of the trust busters. And there are a group of, of very active, dynamic, and relatively young, um, highly savvy techno politicians coming in the, in, into Washington or uh, in the Biden administration. Lena Khan, who's 32 years old, is, is head of the FTC. 
Jonathan Cantor, um, 48, the Justice Department's Antitrust Division, and Tim Wu, who many of, many of our listeners will know from his writing, um, uh, is now r- running the White House competition policy. He's only 49 years old. Is this enough, uh, Jeremy? Uh, are these new trust busters with their energy, their understanding of tech, their commitment to profoundly changing things, are they finally going to change stuff? So is it enough? The answer is no, it's not enough. The answer is it's a beginning. And uh, as you can see from the cases that have been filed by the state attorney generals, uh, by the Department of Justice, by the FTC that have run into challenges in the court, um, enforcement is not going to be enough. Ultimately, you're going to need some legislative change that reflects an updated understanding of how to think about antitrust in a moment dominated by social media platforms where price isn't the issue anymore. And of course, the people that you've mentioned previously, most directly Lena and Tim Wu, have been people who've been making arguments for a long time about the need to update our understanding of the antitrust framework. Um, So part of it is about the kind of legal frameworks for thinking about antitrust in the United States. Uh, And ultimately, while you may get cases filed and and actions pursued, enforcement actions, they're going to continue to run into the challenge of interpretation in the judiciary and whether we can achieve some greater uh, constraint and restriction on on the market dominance of these platforms in the absence of of new legislation. And these are the kinds of things that we see the House Judiciary uh, working on with its its sort of groundbreaking report investigating the anti-competitive practices of the major tech companies. Amy Klobuchar has also been a champion on these issues in the US Senate. But it's also the case that we haven't been serious about enforcement up until the present. You know, one of the, the, the hidden issues in the budget debates in Washington is, can we provide greater resources to Lena Khan and her team at the FTC to actually carry out the sorts of investigations and to file the enforcement actions that would be necessary? You know, when I say that politicians have been asleep at the wheel over the last, you know, 20, 25 years, it's been out of a deliberate choice to create a regulatory oasis around tech companies. This was a choice of the Clinton and Gore administration in the 1990s to pave that pathway to the information superhighway. And that meant, especially after the Microsoft antitrust case, basically a removal of government policymakers and regulators from the tech space enabling the kind of wild west of data collection that we've seen unfold with respect to our personal data, all of the mergers and acquisitions that have built these incredibly dominant companies. Um, And it's going to take a while to build back the kind of enforcement capabilities that we need. So it's a beginning. It is not the end. And I think if people are looking for quick fixes on this front, uh, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a period of push and pull back and forth. uh, And ultimately, the bad is that you've got an emerging bipartisan sense here in Washington that there are problems that need to be solved, that the unchecked power of big tech is something that can't go on, uh, and that ultimately the kind of societal harms that we see around us, whether it's related to the value that we put on privacy or the bias that we see in the algorithms that are being used or the pollution of our information ecosystem, these are things that are now part of the every table, every day a dinner table conversation for people. They're not visible. Uh, they're not invisible any longer. They're totally visible. Uh, Jeremy, uh, sorry, you mentioned um, 
you mentioned the, the, the Gore-Clinton administration, the Clinton-Gore administration. You were part of the Obama administration. You went to D.C. Uh, to help with the Open Government Initiative. Uh, you worked for Samantha Power, very much involved, obviously, in the higher echelons of the Obama administration. To what extent uh, do you think Obama is responsible or at least accountable for a lot of these problems. Uh, back in 2011, the Atlantic r- ran a piece about how close Obama and Eric Schmidt were. The Intercept has run all sorts of pieces on this. They even called the Obama administration the Android administration. And lots in, in this Intercept piece, they showed how often Google people went to the White House. I think they had more access to Obama than, than any other uh, corporation. I'm not pointing a finger at you, but collectively, the progressives who came to D.C. with Obama, how much accountability do they have for the crisis of big tech today? So I know a bit with Rob on the earlier show that, you know, we've experienced a transition over time from a period of just tremendous optimism about technology's potential, technology's democratic and liberating potential technology's potential to really create pathways of upward social mobility and access to politics and access to information in ways that really might help achieve some real progressive dreams about the kind of society that that we want to live in. Uh, And that was, of course, replaced over the last five years by a tech lash, a backlash against tech, a recognition that the corporate interests and incentives that drive big tech often don't have our public interest at heart. Uh, but really the private financials that have enriched uh, a, a small number of people extraordinarily over this period. So when you reflect back on the Obama period, you have to put it in its appropriate historical context. This was a moment of tremendous optimism around tech, uh, tremendous optimism about what technology could mean, uh, but also in a, in a sort of baldly political way, this was also uh, the driving force behind the American economy in this period. And it was a part well, it of still the is. I mean, I'm not sure if that's that's an is. excuse. I mean, if anything, it's even more today. I'm not sure I buy this idea that you're presenting. I mean, there were a lot of people, even in 2010, uh, warning uh, people about uh, the, 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 the dark side of big tech. I've written a series of books. Jaron Lanier, Sherry Turkle, Nicholas Carr. When did you wake up, Jeremy, to recognize that things were going really badly wrong here? So I think I think you're right to push on this. And, and, and where I was headed is to say that part of what I saw in government was a tremendous gap between those who were responsible for governing a society transformed by technology and those who really understood what new technologies were doing and the kinds of effects that they were having. Now, I was working on the foreign policy side during this period, not focused on domestic policy. So the two most stirring examples of this were, number one, the debates about end-to-end encryption and the hacking of the iPhone that played out around the counterterrorism actions uh, you know, between 2013 and 2016, where inside the policymaking room, you really saw a tremendous debate between those who were concerned about protecting the space for the technology companies to build uh, applet, sort of prioritize privacy over all sorts of other goals and objectives and, and sort of resisted any efforts to, to pursue access to devices and information flows. Um, 
and those on the national security side who said, look, from the perspective of, of Americans who want to prevent domestic terror attacks, we need to be in a position to understand whether, you know, the killers in San Bernardino, you know, in 2015 were connected to anyone else in a network. And, and for the tech companies to say there's nothing we can do about this really puts American safety and security at risk. The other example that played out, uh, you know, most directly was, you know, the, the state-sponsored attack on, on Sony. We're now in a moment where, you know, ransomware attacks and cyber hack attacks are kind of a common feature, but we were sort of at the early stages of the weaponization of these tools against the U.S. private sector. And when I came back to Stanford in 2015, you know, I was, I was sort of taken with these two examples and found my way to my colleagues, Maron and Rob, because I was concerned that both on the computer science side and on the social science side, we were not preparing people to engage in thinking about the future of tech policy and regulation, that people had rose-colored glasses in the policy world about basically being mission aligned with tech companies in terms of what kind of society we were trying to build and achieve. And for me, the distinction is as clear as there's something called the public interest and there's something quite separate called the private interest. The, the flowery mission statements of big tech companies in terms of their goals and aspirations we need to be really clear-eyed when we draw that distinction. And when we're having conversations in government, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, about what's in our collective public interest, we can't make assumptions that technology companies share those same interests. And I think that was not always well handled in the Obama administration. And we see a very different approach in the Biden administration as a result. Uh, you were there, of course, uh, in Washington, D.C., when, the, when, the, when the, 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 the Snowden story erupted. Uh, we've had Barton Gelman, who was the Washington Post reporter, who was one of the people who had access to Snowden on the show. He's written a couple of books about uh, Snowden. He argues that Snowden strengthened American democracy. Would you agree with that? I think the striking thing to me about the Snowden story in retrospect is how much it makes transparent the very distinctions that we draw between government access and the access of private companies to personal data. So the, the, the concerns that Snowden was raising about uh, surveillance and, and the role of our national security state, especially in the United States and 11, sort of played on people's concerns about government just having too much access to your data, government being able to snoop in on your telephone calls and, and your personal networks. Now, of course, Snowden's concerns come against the backdrop that government access to personal data in the United States is as regulated as any sector, right? In the national space by the FISA court, in the domestic space, whether it relates to education records or health records by multiple pieces of legislation. Now contrast that environment where Snowden, of course, raised legitimate concerns uh, and caused a whole number of reforms related to, to sort of intelligence collection um, but contrast that with the wild west of data collection in the private sector, right? No real constraints beyond a very flimsy notice and consent or notice and choice framework where you click through hundred page documents that writes and, and sort of what responsibilities the tech companies have, but no one takes them seriously. And so when I engage students now in the classroom around issues of privacy, they look at the government as far more trustworthy with respect to the protection of personal data than the private sector. Uh, they see, we actually had the former deputy director of the National Security Agency, who'd been in a leadership role during the Snowden revelations, come share the stage with the chief privacy officer of Facebook. 
And where our students' profound discomfort is, is not with respect to, to the role of the government, which operates under judicial and oversight constraints with respect to personal data, but really around the role of private companies and the huge asymmetry of power between private companies and the binary choice that they offer you. You want this product, and as a result, you turn over all of your rights to this personal data. And we're not even going to make that transparent and visible to you, and we're not going to give you another path. Uh, and so ultimately, that, I think, is the locus of concern in the present moment. And, you know, the other part of the Snowden story is the story of whistleblowers. And Snowden was a whistleblower with respect to the American government. Facebook filed last week in the Wall Street Journal is whistleblowers with respect to big tech companies. We saw that play out with Theranos. We're now seeing that play out with Facebook. And ultimately, that kind of accountability journalism is part of how we're going to bring to the surface not only the underlying problems, but also the ways in which existing institutions are failing to address them. Google, of course, and Facebook, they're all Web 2.0 companies. That was the last revolution. Governments always, it seems, a chapter behind or a pace behind what's really happening. The new game in town is crypto. Um, and uh, the federal, the, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, last week said that the U.S. might need more crypto regulation. Um, Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, uh, is also looking quite critically at crypto SPACs and Robinhood. Um, what's your take on whether crypto needs to meet more aggressively regulated so it doesn't explode in the catastrophic way in which um, th these Web 2.0 companies have? And of course, if crypto goes wrong, the entire world economy goes wrong too. So I think crypto is, is an example of a future technology uh, like others that we mentioned. The other examples we give is, is GPT-3, uh, which is these powerful language models. So these, these are not the problems of today quite yet. They're the problems of the future. Um, and ultimately- But don't we need to jump on those now? Isn't that the we challenge? Absolutely we, we absolutely do, right? Because you know, part of what happened in Web 2.0 and the regulatory oasis that we've crafted was basically problems that could have been observed early scaled so quickly to large numbers of users, not only in the United States, but also more broadly, without any active uh, government engagement or oversight, without any deliberate effort on the part of the companies to understand what their potential harms might be. And so we have an opportunity to get ahead with crypto. We have an opportunity to get ahead of that with GPT-3. We have an opportunity to get ahead of that with self-driving cars. And the kind of deliberate approach that we're seeing with self-driving cars, um, you know, where we are experimenting with their use in real world settings, trying to understand the relationship between human beings and machines before we roll them out at scale on all of our streets, harmful consequences for people's lives. That kind of deliberate, what Nicole Wong has called a slow food movement for tech is really what we argue for in the book. And so you need it in crypto, you need it for the language, you need it for self-driving cars and for each of these technologies that are on the horizon. And of course that exists in tension with all of the incentives of the companies to scale quickly and all of the incentives of the investors and in companies to find the next unicorn. The slower, and, and, and I know Nicole quite well, the, the, the slow food movement in tech would particularly be interesting in terms of applying to work. Uh, yesterday, I had Alec Ross, another ex-Obama person who has a new book out, The Raging 2020s. I'm sure you know Alec. He worked for Hillary Clinton and then Barack Obama. 
Um, he writes uh, quite passionately in his book, The Raging 2020s, about the need to rethink unions and labor organization in the context of our uh, new precariat of the Uber workers and the Lyft drivers, uh, this new post-industrial environment. We also had Sarah Horowitz on the show, an old-time labor uh, organizer uh, who has a new book out, Mutualism, which is another attempt to rethink the organization of labor. I know this isn't a formal government policy issue, but what is your thought uh, uh, in system error or your personal ideas on um, labor jobs um, and the role of government in protecting the right of the worker in the age of big tech? So let me say two things about this. So, so first, it's one of the optimism that I have about the future of big tech, that we are beginning to see uh, a labor movement emerging within tech. When, when you talk to leaders of tech companies, they say one of their existential crises or concerns is the ability to recruit and retain top flight talent. And there's just a race to get the very best people. And so the awakening that we've seen in tech companies over the last four years uh, to the harmful consequences of products, to the decision-making of the leadership, to concerns about uh, potential effects that, that where there are harms that are not being mitigated, these are things that are the reflection of worker power in tech companies. And though this will proceed in fits and starts and you'll have success in some contexts and not in others, for example, the failed effort uh, to organize Amazon workers in, in recent months, this very creates incentives for companies to get ahead of that kind of mobilization, to think harder about what markets they enter, to think harder about how they treat their lowest wage workers. And so I think we are at a moment of a resurgence uh, of, of labor organization. And ultimately, when you, when you combine that with the kind of thinking that's happening in Washington by people like Elizabeth Warren and others about imagining corporate boards, reimagining representation of workers and companies, and even conversations that are happening in Silicon Valley itself about B corporations and the social bottom line, this is a really productive moment for rethinking those relationships. But the other thing I'd say is that you know, because I do wear this hat as a former government policymaker, some of the biggest effects of big technology companies in the future are going to be the way that they change the nature of work. And, and when you look at the hard data, uh, while we may not experience a rapid evisceration of all jobs the way that the fatalists suggest, we are going to experience groups that will be disproportionately harmed by the continuing trend toward automation. And those tend to be the lowest wage workers. They tend to be the people in the most precarious situations. And what that really requires and what we ought to be able to make bipartisan agreement around in the United States is a dedicated investment in education, in transitional assistance, uh, in upskilling, to support America's workforce to basically adapt to the present moment. We've got to be able to squeeze that out of Washington because those are the real consequences that are infecting our politics, that are generating polarization in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and in other parts of the advanced economies. And we've got to get our head around what it means to prepare a workforce for the 21st century. That won't come about through worker organizing alone, but ultimately there's going to be work that's needed to be done both within companies and by government to address the impact of AI on the workforce. Put a third hat on, Jeremy, finally for me, the futurist hat. Uh, we had Yanis Varoufakis, I'm sure you know him, the 
former Greek uh, economics minister who has a new book out, Another Now, imagining a world in which we get beyond techno-feudalist capitalism, at least according to him. Uh, last week, I also had Dave Eggers on the show. I'm sure you know his work. He wrote The Circle. He has a new book out, The Every, which is an even more dystopian take on a world controlled in 20 years by big tech, uh, by a, a San Francisco controlled by a single company. What do you want to see in 20 years? You've suggested to me in this conversation that you are cautiously, and you're clearly a cautious thinker, cautiously optimistic. But where can we be in 20 years if people read your book uh, and people take note of people like Lena Khan and we achieve some of these reforms? What will the, lo- what, what will the world look like in, say, 2035? when it comes to technology and society? Or what should it look like? What do you hope it looks like? So I think governing big tech, maybe, Andrew? Yeah. Governing big tech is, is one of the existential challenges for democracy in this age. And color me an optimist, or at least uh, a sort of hopeful pragmatist in the sense that, um, you know, democracy is a system that we have developed a technology us in diverse communities with distinct preferences and tons of disagreement to try and arrive at collective aspirations that work uh, toward consensus or at least productive ways forward uh, to govern societies. And if you look over the scope of human history, these political institutions have done amazing things. They enable us generally to live at peace with one another. They enable us to create rules of the road for private markets to operate, generated innovations that have dramatically improved the quality of living for people all around the world. So am I optimistic that we can tackle this challenge? I am, but it requires an extraordinary investment on the part of technologists who take a hard look at what they're doing in their companies. It takes an incredible investment on the part of investors and corporate leaders to recognize that they have stakeholders that go beyond their corporate board. And most importantly, it takes an extraordinary investment on the part of us as citizens to say that the outcomes that we're seeing from big tech are not acceptable to us. And we're not only going to hold Mark accountable for that, we're going to hold the president of the United States accountable for that. We're going to hold our senators and our congresspeople accountable for that. Because the failure to mitigate these harms isn't just a function he's doing wrong. It's a function also of our political systems failing to identify these harms and attempt to mitigate them. It's good stuff, Jeremy. Uh, I hope Mark Zuckerberg and Joe Biden are watching and listening. We can't blame everything on on Zuckerberg. It's always too easy. Uh, You don't do that in your new book, which you co-author, System Era, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot, a really important and interesting new book. Congratulations on that. You're talking to me from Seattle. You're on book tour, finally, in our cautiously post-COVID world, Jeremy. That's why we can blame the Wi-Fi on, on your Seattle hotel. Um, what uh, else should people be reading in addition to System Era uh, in in this cautiously optimistic new age, post-COVID, post-utopian uh, childishness on big tech? So thanks for the question. And, and, you know, with the foreign policy side of my hat, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the 20th anniversary of 9-11 um, and, of course, you know, the the tragedy of the withdrawal from Afghanistan with its consequences for the Afghan people. So the two things I've been reading most recently are, are first a book by Ayad Akhtar from a number of years ago, Homeland Elegies, which is an extraordinary take on 
on sort of uh, the immigrant experience in the United States, the experience of Muslim in the United States. It's a novel, but it clearly draws on, on lived experience as well. And I've been very taken in, in, in recent weeks by an article in The New Yorker, The Other Afghan Women, uh, an extraordinary portrait of Helmand province uh, over decades of, of the war in Afghanistan that really window into the challenges of, of, of occupation, the real limits of external actors in trying to bring about change, um, and helps us really make sense of, of why it is that this hugely expensive and, and costly undertaking over the last 20 years resulted in the reemergence of the Taliban. Uh, I can't. Uh, I can't help asking, Jeremy. Finally, 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 is there a symbolic connection between our um, optimism, our childish optimism about Afghanistan and, and and rebuilding the world in our own image, us being America, and our mistaken assumptions about big tech? I mean, I can understand why you're asking the question, and I think. You know, one of the unique features of identity is is a sort of we can do it mentality um, that 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 we're all sharing and guided by a set of common values. Um, we call them universal values. Often, I guess what I'd say from my experience is that it has often been the case in in highly varied contexts that what we talk about as universal values are really shared in multiple contexts. The desire to have a better life for yourself and your family members, the desire to be able to express your own opinions and views in your own voice. These are things that I don't think of as American values. I think of these as values that people have all around the world. Where maybe we struggle is, is a sense of recognizing the limits of our own power and influence um, that, that, that ultimately energy and, and will and a desire to do good are not enough. And that you have to look beneath the surface and really understand not only what's possible, but where there are conflicting and misaligned incentives. And the relationship that we're evolving with tech is a recognition that tech isn't just an unmitigated force for good in the world, just like U.S. power and hegemony isn't an unmitigated force for good in the world. And so we need to look beneath the surface and understand what is it that we're trying to achieve, where are our interests aligned, and what are the real limits of our power, whether that's power of a state, power of tech companies, uh, and ultimately, what are the other actors whose voices need to be heard at the table? Well, Jeremy Weinstein, the author of System Era, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot, a book that really does look beneath the surface of big tech. Congratulations on the book, Jeremy, uh, and good luck with everything in the future. I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about some of these broader issues. You bring great little experience both of tech and of Washington, D.C., and you're just down the road at Stanford. So thank you so much. Keep well, and we'll talk again very soon. Terrific. Take care.